Welcome to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'm Larry Lannon. This is a chance for local people or people with a local connection to sit down and talk about what is going on with them in the Fishers community. This is a part of my local Fishers Indiana News blog that began in January of 2012. I started these podcasts in 2016 and have been going ever since. Now, here's the latest edition of the LarryInFishers.com podcast. I'd like to welcome again Lindsay Erdodi. She's uh, formerly North of 96th reporter for Indianapolis Business Journal. That's how we first got to know each other. She was up in, in Fishers quite a bit covering events here. Then you moved on to being the Statehouse reporter at the IBJ. And now you are the education and health uh, I guess the digital editor is the technical uh, term we would use as far as your job there. So, Lindsay, it's always good to talk to you. Welcome back. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be back. Well, I, I just love the idea that uh, you're you're doing uh, health and education, the way they intersect. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that. Well, actually, more than a little bit about that as we go on this podcast. But I want to start it off by putting something on the record that I myself have been a supporter of uh, and a member of public broadcasting for many, many years. It's one of our greatest crown jewels as far as all kinds of TV and radio programming, but news is central to, I think, what uh, both radio and TV does. And you have a great digital presence where you are in terms of what what you're doing. Um, and I just want to put that on the record. And when we're done here at the end, I am going to let you remind people how you can support public broadcasting because a very big part of your funding does come from the general public. It's, I mean, you have various sources, you have foundation grants, you have some government money, not as much as people think, uh, but you do get some public support, but a lot of the money you get is from rank and file people watching and listening. So, uh, I will give you that opportunity later with that. So noted, um, I don't want to talk about health and education within the era of COVID and the pandemic. Those two issues come together quite often. And I'm sure you're seeing that as you work with your reporters and try to cover these issues. And I do see that you did, you actually did uh, author a story I just saw recently on WFYI.org, which is where most of your content is. Um, you have a, a, a database that you were using to take a look at how much public schools are spending on COVID. Um, that was an interesting angle. Talk about how that came together. Yeah, so that's something uh, as a team we've been covering for a while now with the pandemic, there was all this federal money uh, you know, being pushed into schools to help students deal with learning loss. You know, that's the term we keep using is learning loss. And um Indiana schools as a whole are getting nearly $3 billion. Um, so there's a ton of money coming in that's then being dispersed to all the schools. And then we're looking at the schools and seeing, okay, well, how are they spending that money now? And the state is also working to put together a database uh, that shows how much has been spent. So the way it works is the schools have to spend the money and then submit reimbursement requests to the state. So 
the, the money's flowing through a lot of different areas and it can get a little confusing, but schools were supposed to have submitted spending plans to the state as well. And that is probably the latest um, story that you were referencing that we put together a database that then links to all of these plans. And I will say, uh, you know, if you go and find this story, a little caveat with that is not all of the schools have been great about posting their plans and sharing them. So, you know, we've had some people come and say, well, that link, you know, just took me to the school's website or that didn't really tell me anything. And, you know, yes, (laughs) you are correct. Um, It can be really hard to find out how these schools are spending the money. And that was actually the story we did right before we published the database um, that kind of talked about why it's so hard to find these spending plans and and what some schools are sharing and and what some schools are not sharing about it. So uh, definitely something we've covered a lot to date over the past, I don't know, six months or so. And it's definitely something we're going to continue to cover because they've got several more years uh, that they can take to spend all of this money that they're getting. And, and the one thing I took away from that more than anything else is that there is, and you've kind of touched on this, there is no uniform method for reporting. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of data that's missing, and it's not like, okay, school system ABC, you must report this and you must put it there. This has not been easy to find, has it been? No, not at all. And even the state database that has now been created that shows, okay, this school has submitted reimbursement requests for X amount of dollars and they've got X amount of dollars left that's been allocated to them to spend. That's not going into detail and saying, okay, they spent a million dollars and here's what they spent it on. It is only saying they spent a million dollars. So, you know, this is going to continue to be a thing where we're going to have to pry into it to find out how the money is being spent. But, you know, whether it's federal money or or state money, it's all public tax dollars uh, that are going to these schools and and being spent. So we think that the public has a a right to know how the money is being spent. And we think the public has an interest in it, too, because, you know, everyone's concerned about how kids are doing and what the impact of the pandemic is going to be on their education. And learning loss is a, it's a genuine serious issue. And uh, yes, I understand why parents and families would be interested and the public would be interested. And I'm very glad to see that you and and your reporting staff are, are on that story. We'll keep an eye on that. Another recent story that you have uh, published at WFYI.org was by one of your reporters, Lee Gaines. And this was described as a training loophole for school resource officers. Now, for people who don't know what a school resource officer is, is basically a uniformed police officer assigned to a school building. Uh, there is some, I think, 40 hours of training that is uh, supposed to be given to someone who is working in a school in that capacity. And yet your reporting found that there's, it's difficult to figure out which school systems and police departments are training their officers and which are not. Yeah, so the loophole that you're mentioning is that for that training to be required, the officer would have to essentially self-identify as a school resource officer. And if they're not identifying as that, if they're just you know, a police officer that happens to be walking through the school or, you know, helping with security at the school, then they aren't subject to that training requirement. And so that becomes the issue because then we don't know 
how many hours, if any, those officers have been getting in terms of training on how to work with students specifically. Um, you know, obviously, if they're a retired police officer or something, they went through law enforcement training. But this is training that is specifically about dealing with kids, dealing with kids' mental health issues. Um, there's all sorts of you know issues that you can expect that would come up in a school that aren't necessarily going to come up on the day-to-day life of a, a police officer out in a city. Um, so that is you know what this training would get at. So there is a bill filed at the state house right now that would aim to close that loophole. Um, and no longer, you know, allow that, uh, you know, for, for people to get by and to not have to do that training. Um, and so it's, it's passed out of one chamber. We'll see what happens, you know, as we're in the second half of session. Uh, but that's definitely something that Lee will keep watching to see, uh, you know, if that loophole ends up getting closed or not. You um, partner with Chalkbeat, uh, a nonprofit that uh, partners with a lot of news organizations. And I was kind of perusing your website earlier today. I did uh, take notice of a Chalkbeat story that uh, you did choose to to post on WFYI.org. And it's a story by Stephanie Wang, who writes locally for for Chalkbeat. Uh, And it talked about and wrote about incentives that are being given by some of these private schools most a lot of them are online schools, basically giving people all kinds of you know, incentives to buy school supplies. Even a Netflix subscription, I think, was one incentive that was offered. But some of these private schools, and this one included, are receiving at least some state money, which then, of course, brings them under the uh, purview of the Indiana General Assembly and the the, the state house uh, elected officials are looking at that. I know that was not a story that came out of your uh, reporters, but uh, it is interesting that we're seeing some of these private schools because they're accepting state money get some state scrutiny. And you covered the state house. That's, I think that's an interesting development. Yeah. Um, so I'll just say, you know, quickly on the Chalkbeat partnership that we have, um, we do have a great relationship with Chalkbeat. Uh, we publish their stories occasionally. They publish our stories occasionally. I'm not sure if a lot of people realize that. Um, But with our education team at WFYI, uh, since we are public media and our content is free and available to all, we have started uh, trying to share it more often. And so you will also see IBJ, for example, has published um, some of our work. Um, Initially, they were publishing it through Chalkbeat because people were taking a story we published that Chalkbeat published and then they were publishing, you know, so we're trying to uh, cut out that middleman uh, when we can and, and create more of that, that distribution. But uh, to, to this story specifically from Chalkbeat that we ran, um, yeah, it, it's again, getting at a loophole, right. In, in the law that, that families have found. And like you said, have been able to pay for these things like Netflix subscriptions and, um, you know, sports equipment, and there was there was all sorts of stuff. And you know, I think some of the things people would argue are totally valid expenses, and some of them I think people would argue are a little questionable when we're talking about tax dollars <laughs> being used. Um, you know, some of the arguments from the parents in that that story were that these are things a kid would have access to if they were in a traditional in-person school. So they should have access to this at their at-home private school. Um, 
Again, there's legislation at the state house uh, that's kind of making its way through. We're in the second half. Um, we'll see what happens with it. Uh, it's obviously caught the attention of state lawmakers. I think we've seen a lot of that in recent years of these private and virtual schools um, and issues with how dollars are being spent and lawmakers realizing maybe they need to have a little bit more oversight of some of these things. So uh, I, th I think we'll see, continue to see that happen as stories like this come out. Yeah, and taking state money kind of puts you on that that uh, uh, that purview with the state uh, legislators that, that would not have had you not accepted that. I want to emphasize something you mentioned just a moment ago. Uh, in this era of paywalls, WFYI.org has their news section, and it is free and available to anyone. Now, on the other hand, I would encourage people to subscribe to your local media, IBJ, IndyStar, others that are out there with paywalls. I think they're definitely worth uh, the money you pay for them, but I think it's worth saying that WFYI's news content is available for free at WFYI.org. And of course, it's also available on the radio and available on television uh, to a certain extent as well. So I just want to mention that also. A story, another story I want to talk about that's that's uh, very, that sort of intersects health and education. I think it's more education. It's the transgender athlete ban. It's received an awful lot of attention. And I want to uh, emphasize to everyone, uh, Lindsay and I are recording this in the late afternoon of February the 15th. Things can change. So people listen to these podcasts later. So uh, if you listen to it at a later date, some of what we're saying here may be out of date if so, but we're talking about what we know now. But the transgender athlete band is one of those extremely emotional issues. And there's so much emotion really on both sides of, of this question that the legislature is, is, is trying to deal with. My question to you on an issue like that, how difficult is it uh, to cover an emotionally charged issue. How how do you give guidance to your reporters on, on how to approach a story like that? Yeah, that uh, can definitely be a tough one. And like you said, it is, there are so many emotions around that one. And uh, when they had a hearing a few weeks ago, there were people shouting at the end of it. Uh, there was a lot of tension in the air with the, the most recent hearing. Um, there's going to be another uh, protests tomorrow at the state house about it, um, you know, ahead of another hearing that it's supposed to have um, and potentially a vote out of the committee. Um, so many emotions around it. I think the thing for journalists, though, is we have to take ourselves out of it, right? It's, it's not about us. And even if you're a journalist who happens to know a transgender athlete who might be affected by this, or you know a, a family who feels very strongly one way or the other about this, you, you have to kind of get that out of your head and try to uh, understand where all the sides of this is coming from. Um, and I mean, that's our job on any issue, right? Like, obviously it can be harder uh, when you've got something like this that you might have personal feelings on. Um, but I think there are a lot of things at the state house that come up like that, where you really have to take yourself out of it. I mean, think about the same sex marriage debates from years ago at the state house. Uh, I remember covering those, <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, I was actually a reporter for the Herald times in Bloomington 
uh, Bloomington's population cared very deeply about that legislation. So I was uh, up here in Indianapolis to to cover that. Um, and, you know, the RIFRA uproar that we saw more recently, um, you know, there are all sorts of these things that are very emotionally charged and you just have to really for that time that you are listening to the testimony and that you are reporting on it and writing about it, take yourself out of it and come at it from this impartial lens and report the facts about what is being said and what's happening. Emphasis on facts, uh, because I know we've seen that come up a lot recently of, you know, what there's debate sometimes over what is factual and what is not. Um, but, you know, if you if you do that and focus on that and then if you need to, you know, take a break the next day when that story is done and have some time for your own mental health reasons, then that's OK. Um, and I think, uh, you know, news organizations really need to realize that and honor that a little bit because um, writing some writing about some of these emotionally charged issues can really take a lot out of you as a reporter. And if you're in the state house, you know this better than I. You're listening to hours of testimony on some of these issues. And when when the testimony becomes emotional, that is a fact that you have to report. And you have to take yourself out of the emotional part. And that's that's very difficult to do. Which brings me to the next issue, another one that's drawn a lot of emotion and factual uh, controversy. House Bill 1134 on education, dealing with parental involvement in education and curriculum and uh, how certain sensitive issues such as race relations should be taught in the schools. Uh, What I find about this is how people can read the same bill and come to completely different conclusions about what it says. Uh, Everything I have seen, and I, I cover education locally, have for about 10 years, as you know, Lindsay, And the teachers I have spoken with and have communicated with are solidly behind uh, not supporting this bill. And there may be some teachers who are for it. I just haven't heard from them. The vast majority that have talked to me or have been posting on social media, the teaching staffs, are not in favor of this. But what I find interesting is some of the people who are promoting House Bill 1134 have made a couple of different arguments. One is that, you know, you people in opposition have never really read the bill. And another one is, well, you know, uh, the, your organizations, like ISTA, for example, Indiana State Teachers Association, isn't correctly describing what the bill actually says. Yet if I I go on social media, and as a result, a lot of these educators I know are quoting parts of the bill, the exact language, and then explaining what that would mean to them as a teacher. And and the reason I'm going through all this is because it kind of looks at how a journalist covers a story like this in a different way. When you have a situation where the facts are in question, in other words, One side says, well, it really says this, this, and this. The other side says, no, it says this, this, and this. To me, that's where journalists have a very important part to play, to try to to sift through that, look at the language, and try to find out what it means and what the language in that bill would mean if passed. Now, as you know, in the the state house, just because a bill passes one committee or one house— goes to the other doesn't mean it's going to that language will end up being the final language there's a, there are a lot of hurdles to go through even in a short session before that happens 
But explain to me how journalists have a very special responsibility in a situation like HB 1134. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Uh, that gets at another thing we see at the state house from time to time. And that's, you will have people coming and saying, this bill is going to have this effect on my life because of, of X, Y, and Z. And you'll have lawmakers coming back and saying, well, that's, that's not what we're trying to do. That's not right. That's not what it says, but it's almost that the legislation can have if it's going to have a chilling effect it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what the bill says if that makes sense so if this bill passes and becomes law there still may be disagreement about what the law actually says but regardless even if a teacher is uh, allegedly misunderstanding what's in the bill that teacher may make significant changes to their lesson plan because of what they fear people will interpret the bill to say. And, and so because of that, it, it doesn't, the exact language of the bill matters, obviously, but how people are interpreting the bill also matters a lot. And so I think that's why you still see all of these stories around these bills talking about what teachers are saying. Um, you know, if we, pass this bill, even if teachers don't understand it, and then we see, or allegedly don't understand it, and we see a bunch of them quit, then that bill had an impact regardless of, of what the language was and, and was not. Um, and, and you see that from time to time on, on bills like this. I think I mentioned RIFRA earlier. RIFRA is another example of there was disagreement over the interpretation of the language. And you saw all of these businesses threatening to leave the state and lawmakers saying, whoa, 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 this doesn't mean you can discriminate. And they were like, uh-uh, that's what we think it means. And we're going to, we're going to be out of here. Um, and that's why they ended up having the RIFRA fix and yada, yada, yada. That's not what we're here to talk about. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, back to House Bill 1134, there is certainly disagreement over, uh, you know, what the bill would actually do and what it would not do. Um, I think another important part to mention in it right now, at least, is that um, it would allow parents to allege violations of the bill. And I think that is also causing some of this chilling effect for teachers because they may be worried that parents are going to start filing these complaints left and right. And what does that mean for them? What does that mean for their school district? Um, all of that being said, the bill is up for hearing on Wednesday and we've heard uh, that some major changes might be coming to it. Uh, you know, again, as a reminder for everybody, the Senate bill that was very similar uh, didn't make it out of the Senate. So I think all of us have been curious since the House passed it um, without significant differences to what that Senate one uh, that, that got killed had in it, um, how the Senate was going to to deal with this one, since it is still so similar to the one they had before. Um, so we'll see, you know, what, what that new language is, if there are changes that might make teachers feel a little bit better about it or not. Um, you know, on the other hand, you've got a lot of parents who want to say in their kids' education, and, and they believe that this bill would allow them to do that. 
Just a, a note there, if there's any question about it, Lindsay is working from home today. You can hear her dog in the background. She's a dog lover, and we like that. So it's okay. It's a podcast, and these things happen. So I, and I'm happy that you're able to work at home and that your dog can be there with you. But I want to, you know, the, your comparison to Ruffer is not a, a bad comparison because there was tremendous controversy there. But I think there's something procedurally we need to remind people here at even though the Republicans have supermajorities in both the Senate and the House, the Senate and the House do not approach legislation the same way. And uh, it's very likely that a controversial issue like this will result in a different bill, at least language-wise, from each House, House and Senate. So what happens in a case like that, as you well know, Lindsay, is that the bill is essentially rewritten in a conference committee and who knows, you know, what that will end up being. So we're a long way from being done with HB 1134 and a lot of other controversial legislation in the legislature. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if House Bill 1134 looks nothing like it does today when it eventually, you know, is at the end of the process. Um and that is definitely a confusing time for everyone involved because of things you know, new language coming out at the last minute. It's not really posted in ways that are easy to access. Um, and then before you know it, they're voting on it and you're you're trying to explain what is in this new complicated bill. I saw um, I, someone who was opposed to the bill posted uh, something on Twitter about how it's interesting that lawmakers are, you know, pushing teachers to have to post their curriculum and their lesson plans online so far in advance. But then sometimes you've got these amendments to bills that you cannot find them before votes are actually being taken on them. Um, So I thought that was an interesting comparison. Also gets at the whole school board public comment bills that are being considered at the state house right now that would require public comment at school boards, but and, and have a time requirement on it. Uh, which is not always something that the General Assembly follows itself. Well, that's very true, and and I've been watching that as somebody who's covered a school board for ten years and continues to do so. And, and I want to make one ask your your kind of analysis or view on this because I thought one of the pieces of legislation that could have been damaging, in my view, was the bill to uh, take away the nonpartisan election of school board members. I've always felt that was the strength of Indiana elections, that when you run for school board, you don't have a party uh, uh, t- attached to you. You are running as an individual and, and not uh, not in, in a partisan political way. You're, you're just trying to run for school board to be you know bettering the education in your community. That was kind of the attitude behind it. And all but a handful of states do have nonpartisan elections for school boards, but that got killed fairly early in the process. Uh, what? How do you... Do you think that was just a consensus that that was a bad idea? What I'm kind of curious what your feeling is on that. Yeah, that one was interesting uh, because I believe uh, either there was none or there were hardly none uh, people who testified in support of that bill. It was all people in opposition to the bill, uh, which you don't normally see. Normally, you know, the author of the bill will line up a good chunk of support and, and have that there ready to testify to help guide it through the process. So I'm thinking that certainly had something to do with it. Um, Even though you see plenty of bills with lots of opposition, you know, make it through, but um, I'm thinking that played into it. Is that 
concept totally dead though i mean i nothing is dead until signy die when the session is over so well there are a lot of education bills where where language could be uh added back in it seems like it is dead for the year but it's not over till it's over well, you make a good point because that's a, uh, what happens a lot of these conference committees is that language is slipped back into a bill at the last minute. So you're right. It's not over until it's over. I would agree with that. Any time the legislature is in session, anything can happen. I want to talk about another area where health and education do intersect. Uh, there are several school districts uh, close to Fishers. We haven't made the announcement at Hamilton Southeastern Schools at this point, but I wouldn't be surprised if we have one soon. School districts are now beginning to announce the end of their mandatory masking policies within the schools for the students and the teachers. Um, as Up to now, uh, it's not now, but I think what they're doing, the school systems are saying we're going to end at a, this future date. Uh, what are your reporters hearing? I mean, are the county and state health officials weighing in on this? And the CDC has been very cautious in their guidance. Uh, these school systems seem to be just basically reacting to very nice statistics showing COVID uh, positivity rates are going down dramatically. I think in Fishers, it's down something like 80% over three weeks. Um, uh, what are your reporters hearing as far as the uh, health professional community is concerned? Yeah, it's certainly... Uh an ongoing issue. Uh, like you said, cases are going down. Uh, so you do see everything moving in the right direction, but man, don't we sound like a broken record because we've heard that before, right? You know, we've gone through these waves of cases going up, cases going down. I remember at the beginning of the school year, uh, we put together a story that looked at the masking policies for the schools in Marion County, whether it was going to be required or recommended. And you know, you would think something as simple as like our kids having to wear masks or not would be a simple thing, but it got so complicated. Schools were changing their policies left and right because, you know, parents upset one way or the other about whatever the, the initial policy was. And so I think even as we see schools dropping the masking policy, I think it's going to continue to evolve you know, we don't really have uh, that much good guidance on it right now. You know, the, the CDC has kind of said, please keep wearing a mask, but we really haven't heard anything from the state health department recently. We really haven't heard anything from the Marion County health department recently. You would know better than me about the Fisher's health department, <laughs> but um you know, it just seems like several months ago, we just it just kind of all got really quiet on the COVID front in terms of what we were hearing from our state and local health officials. You know, you think back to the day, early days of the pandemic when we were having a press conference every single day, you know, and that slowly decreased and got to weekly, at least on the state level. Uh, but now the health department's not even sending out an email with the case numbers every day. Uh, you can go and refresh the, the state's dashboard and, and get those numbers. But for months and months and months, I was always coming in an email to anyone who would want it. Um, and, and that has stopped as well. Um, and, you know, like I said, it just seems like the situation changes and evolves so quickly that I would say that's probably why it's hard to, you know, have these 
policies because your policy today may need to be totally different a month from now. Um, you know, and then that causes confusion among everybody and whether you're general public, whether you're a parent sending your kid to school, um, you know, and I think as we also see uh, vaccines and, and the availability of vaccines, that's also impacted everything and kids of what ages can get the vaccines. And so, um, you know, throughout all of this, it just, everything moves very quickly <laughs> and, I don't, uh, I'm glad I'm not in the position of these school leaders who are having to make these decisions and tell kids and parents what they have to do. Um, because I, I think no matter what you're, you will have people who are unhappy, right? If, if you're dropping the mask mandates then you've got parents who are thrilled and you've got parents who are angry. It's interesting. Here in Hamilton Southeastern Schools, which takes in the city of Fishers and, and, and outlying areas, Wayne, the three townships, including Wayne Township, our, we have a new superintendent, uh, Yvonne Stokes, and uh, she has constantly said, we have a mask mandate because we want to have these students in school. I don't want to close schools and put people on, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, online school uh, for any period of time. We know it's better that these students be in school than be at home taking classes, and they wear the mask. So we, And, you know, it's funny. We still have some people who are opposed, but the opposition tamped down a great deal when she put it in those – she framed the argument that way. You know, we, I'm trying to keep these kids in school, don't you? And, and it's funny. I think the, the community is kind of bought into that. So I think a lot of it has to be how you frame the argument uh, to your local community. And, um, you know, and the fact is HSE has not had to close a school or put uh, people on virtual learning this school year, which is quite a record. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Uh, you know, and also related to all of this are the quarantining rules, which have also changed um, several times in terms of what schools have to do and, and not have to do. And that also ties back into their masking policy and, and what their masking policy is and dictates what their quarantining policy has to be. I have one story that you've covered, you and your staff have covered about health, and that has to do with nursing. I mean, there's no question that the nurses have been worked to death, those working in hospitals. And what we're seeing in some cases are nurses, not some of them are just leaving nursing altogether. Some are just leaving nursing in a hospital going into some other form of, of health care. Uh, this is a, a looming crisis because there was a, sh a nursing shortage before the pandemic happened, and your reporters have, have brought that up. Uh, state lawmakers are trying to tackle this. I've been trying to follow that, and your reporters have been following it. Uh, what do you think are the chances that we will see some action by the legislature to try to to deal with this nursing shortage in our state. Yeah, I, the nurses are just exhausted. Um, I mean, that's something that our team has been reporting on uh, throughout the course of the pandemic. And again, it almost feels like we're a broken record because it's like, okay, the nurses are really exhausted. And then, you know, we, cases go down, hospitalizations go down, we go a few months and then, you know what, we hit another wave. And guess what? We've got another story about nurses being exhausted and hospitals being overwhelmed. And, you know, right around Christmas this year, we had um, IU Health and Methodist having to call in uh, the National Guard and the Art or the, the Navy to come help uh, staff the hospital. Um, 
because they just, they don't have the people. Um, they're exhausted. They're, they're leaving the profession. So, you know, will the general assembly act on this? I think they will pass something. I think there was quite a bit of disagreement about whether or not that bill that you mentioned, um, is the way to do it. And if it will have the impact they want it to have. Um, and, and so I think that's going to be the question for anything they might pass is will it actually help attract more nurses here or get more people into the profession or keep those who are in the profession there. Um, and, and time will tell on that. Right. I mean, that is truly hard to predict, um, what they can do about that. It, It reminds me a lot of another health related issue they've been trying to tackle, which is healthcare prices. And the general assembly has passed some legislation that has to do with price transparency and, you know, getting at it from that perspective and in a way that could help. Um, But these are like long-term strategies that that we won't know if they've paid off. You know, we're not going to know that tomorrow. It's going to be months from now, years from now, if we know that they've paid off uh, in the long run. And the other thing I will say, in addition to the nursing shortage, we've also got an issue with the the doctors who are doing their their last couple of years of training right now. You know, they've graduated from med school. They're they're doing uh, their their last bits of training, and uh, we had a story that was basically you know these doctors saying they've become COVID doctors. They're not getting their specialized training that they otherwise would have because they keep getting pulled into treating COVID patients, and because all these other things are now related to COVID, right? And so they are unable to to get the training they would have, say, if this was 2018, 2019. Um, and that's going to impact things in the long run in terms of our doctors. So it's it's not just our nurses, it's our doctors. I not, I, not to be super negative for everybody, uh, but, you know, it this is going to be something we see the impact of for years to come, whether or not we're dealing with COVID cases or not. Yeah, the doctor angle is an underreported story. And I do think that's very important to bring that up to the public, that uh, doctor training has been greatly impacted by this. So that's it's a very, very good point. As you look uh, to the next few weeks, so what are you and your reporting staff looking at? I know state the state legislature is still in session, but there are lots of other issues within your purview. Well, what what uh, what are you looking forward to covering? Yeah, a, a lot of attention obviously will be on the legislative session and what happens with some of these bills. Uh, you know, this session seems even more focused on education than previous ones. Um, it just seems like all, like so many of these big controversial bills are related to education in some way. Um, so we have to see how those are going to play out. Uh, you know, it seems like all of our health stories are in some way, shape or form related to COVID these days, um, because of these kind of long lasting impacts, uh, that, that we're seeing, um, so we're definitely looking at that, um, an ongoing topic, our education team is covering that in some ways is, is related to some bits of legislation. Um, but we were covering it before the session is special education. Um, as part of the, the team we have here, we've got community engagement specialists who went out and had listening sessions last summer and heard from people about 
things that are not covered when it comes to special education and, and what we could do to kind of shine a light on that. And so we've had some of that reporting so far. Um, and I think we'll continue to see that uh, this, this the legislation I mentioned has specifically to do with non-disclosure agreements when schools and parents disagree about how special education should be handled for the child. Um, a lot of times the way those things get settled is parents, uh, schools kind of end up twisting the parent's arm and making them sign a non-disclosure agreement. And that means they can't go talk to other parents about what they went through and, and try to help them get what's best for their kid or what they think is best for their kid. And uh, this legislation um, kind of gets at that and, and would try to prevent that going forward so parents can be able to talk to other parents about their experience. Um, notably, some schools are, are not thrilled about that. So that's another one. We'll have to see what happens at the state house. Um, regardless of that, though, we'll continue to report on special education. Um, our health team, I will say that another not COVID related thing that we been we have been looking at and will continue looking at is rural health care. I think that's particularly important in Indiana because we do have so many rural areas and how access to care is such an issue there. Uh, when you don't have a hospital nearby or you don't have somewhere you can go or there's not uh, an ambulance service that can get to you um, and how some communities are trying to get creative and, and solve that problem. Um, it, you know, and that also gets into broadband issues when you think of telehealth and how these rural areas don't have good internet access. Um, so gets at all those things. I think we'll continue to cover that, um, health equity and, uh, like racial disparities when it comes to healthcare is another thing that we have been focused a lot on and will continue to be focused on, um, one thing a lot of people probably don't realize is that we share a reporter with the Indianapolis Recorder, which is the city's historic black newspaper. Um, it's the longest running black newspaper in the state of Indiana. Uh, and so she looks at a lot of those issues for us. And then we run their stories, her stories, and uh, the recorder runs them as well. So I would definitely look for some more um, reporting from her in the months to come too. No shortage of issues to cover, and uh, the whole history of the Indianapolis—the okay. whole history of the Indianapolis Recorder—we could probably spend an hour on that. That's an amazing history that newspaper has, and I'm so happy that they're still around and that uh, you found a, a productive partnership with them. One last thing, as I promised, uh, public broadcasting is just that. It, it uh, needs the support of the public. How can someone support WFYI? Because if you go to WFYI.org, all that news uh, material is there for free, and it's because people do make contributions. Talk about how people can get involved. Yeah, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. Like you said, all our content is free and available for people to read. Um, but we would love it if you would become a member. Uh, you can go to wfy.org slash support and all these different ways you can get involved and support us in, in some way, shape or form are kind of listed out on that page. Um, obviously, financial contributions are fantastic. That helps us so much in terms of, you know, keeping everything running. Um, another thing I want to point out too is, you know, because of that, because of some of the grants we've been able to receive, WFI has been growing its team. My position is a brand new position with them. The whole education team is brand new. 
Um, so if these are things, you know, you always hear about news organizations cutting positions and, um, you know, downsizing. And so this is kind of my plea of like, look, we are someone who has been growing and investing in their newsroom and able to expand our coverage into some of these other things that other news outlets are not covering. And then we're able to share our content with them, too, because we do get to operate as public media. Lindsay Ardoti is the digital editor for education at and health for WFYI. You can listen on radio, watch on television for not her uh, material, but other material. And of course, WFYI.org. That is where you go to uh, to receive um, all of their various their video uh, links there, as well as all the stories that she's talking about. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the LarryInFishers.com podcast. If you like the podcast, please let others know. You can find it on most platforms where you go for podcasts. Just search using this phrase, Podcasts by Larry Lannan, L-A-N-N-A-N. Also, if you listen on a platform such as iTunes, please take a moment, rate and comment on my podcast series. So thanks for listening, and please be safe and be kind. Music